0: If you would, remain standing and take your Bible with you if you have one this morning. And turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and 5. Acts chapter 4, we'll finish that chapter and be in to chapter 5 this morning for this sermon. As we continue our way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, says this. and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. "'Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out.' Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles.' And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots in mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. O Lord Jesus, this is your word. Give your blessing upon it today. Put it into our minds and into our hearts and transform us by it. Help us to see again our need for you, our Savior. Help us, Lord, to walk in your ways. We pray our response from this passage would be like those in the passage, that great fear would come upon us as well as we stand in awe of your holy ways, as we, Lord, we want to walk circumspectly before you. We want to walk in integrity with you. Help us. Help us, Lord, change us. Build your church, Lord Jesus, because you said you would. And we trust that you are even doing that now. Amen. You could be seated. Well, since January, we've been studying the book of Acts together, and we saw from the very first verse that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection and ascension. It's what he continued to do by the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, in the preaching of the gospel, with signs confirming the preached word, for the building up of his church. He is building his church as he promised he would. We've seen that in the book of Acts. We've seen Jesus build his church magnificently and powerfully and at times rather suddenly. As we come to a new section today at the end of chapter four and into chapter five, we're gonna see some familiar themes. The unity of the church, the care of the church, the, the proclamation of the gospel, and the growth of the church. We're also going to see some things that are new in the story of Acts. It's in chapter 5, verse 11, that we first see the word church in the book of Acts. We've been saying that as we've talked about it. No doubt, Acts 2, that was a church church. We've been using that word, but here's the first time it's used in the book of Acts, chapter five, verse 11. And that comes at the end of this section, which we might think of as the first recorded sin, at least the sin in the church. It's the first recorded problem of the church, the first recorded confrontation and judgment of people in the church. But before we get to that, let me say a few words about organization and structure in Acts. I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps right up front. I'm not going to ease into this sermon with a story or present a a universal problem for which this passage is the unique answer. Those are great ways of of beginning a sermon. But I'm I'm going to ask you to jump right into the deep end of Bible analysis with me this morning. I'm going to encourage you to look down as I point some things out. First, let's zoom out, let's remember what Acts is, it's history, it's thoughtful history, it's history preached, and rightly so. And so we should always be asking, why did Luke include this story? Why is this here and not someplace else? The answer to that is not just because this happened next. Though in Acts, there's definitely a chronological sequence to what's taking place. But, but it's not exhaustive history. It's selective history. And so we have to ask, why this? Why say this here? Why do this now? Like Old Testament storytelling, if you were with us years ago, we went through First and Second Samuel, you'll remember some of this. There's a, a macro structure that communicates a, a message below the surface. There's lessons left and right on the surface, but when we look at why this story is here and what's next to it and what's going on, we begin to see that there are sometimes messages within the obvious message. And one of the ways that Luke does this in the book of Acts is with summary statements. That's what the scholars call them, summary statements. Look back to chapter two with me, if you would. Chapter two. I won't read it. Just glance down and look at chapter 2, verse 42 to the end of the chapter. That's one of these summary statements. This is Luke, the author, giving editorial comment, summarizing the state of the church at this point. Now, our passage, look at that, chapter 4 and chapter 5. You might have noticed there are two of these summary statements. One at the beginning, that's the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, it's another one of these classic summary statements that Luke gives us, which which are high points. They're highlight reels for the church. They are celebrations of Christ's incredible work in and through his church. So our passage has two of these highlight reels of the church. And what's in between? Yeah, it's kind of a low-light moment, isn't it? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Again, it's a, it's a story that is unique in the book of Acts thus far. It's the first recorded public sin. It's, it's a problem, you could say. It's a, a controversy, you might say. So let me suggest a couple of reasons why Luke may have put these three things together, two summary statements on the end, and Ananias and Sapphira, and that controversy in the middle. I think one reason is that Luke is giving us a contrast between, notice this, the genuine generosity of Barnabas at the end of chapter 4, and the hypocritical, deceptive generosity of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. There are some verbal overlaps there between those two examples of, quote-unquote, generosity. Another reason why I think these passages are in the place that they are is that Luke is once again showing us the inevitable, supernatural progress of the church and the gospel, despite threats on the outside. That's what we've been seeing in chapter 4. And then there's the summary statement at the end of chapter four, which shows us the church is doing just fine. And Luke is showing us the inevitable supernatural progress of the church and the word despite hypocrisy within the church. Last week we saw the church tested from without the outside. This week, we're seeing the church tested from within. And, of course, it's followed by another lofty summary of the church in a great state. So let's see if we can see these dynamics play out from one scene to another. Let's start with that first section. Again, it's a summary, which we might label as the unity and sacrifice of the church at the end of chapter 4. The unity and sacrifice of the church. Much like that summary that we saw in chapter 2, this is a remarkable, supernatural unity and care and sacrifice going on in the church. Verse 32 says they were of one heart and one soul. Their unity was rooted in faith. Those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's a deep unity. One heart and and soul now the, the word heart in the bible it's often used to describe the whole inner man emotions will intellect all that and sometimes in the bible multiple words are used for that same inner man just to emphasize the cohesiveness or the completeness of that inner man like love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength There are some big overlaps between those words, and the goal is not to distinguish what is heart, what is soul, what is mind, but to see how God is to be loved on the complete wholeness of ourselves. And so here, this unity isn't just of heart, but it's heart and soul. It's a pervasive unity. It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. As John Calvin points out at this point, he says, unity among a few is much easier than unity among many. And what we have here in this church is many. The last count we got was 5,000 men, not including women, and you get the feeling that this thing's growing by the day. It's a supernatural unity. That's been evident all throughout Acts. Jesus is building his church. He's giving his Holy Spirit. He's putting his people together in communion. Their great unity was in spite of their diversity. Their diversity didn't threaten their unity, but was part of its beauty. It's implied in our our passage that some in the church were wealthy, and some were, were poor. It wasn't an upper-middle-class church. It wasn't a poor inner-city church. Depending on geography and time and age, some churches may be more wealthy or less wealthy. I suspect that Desert Springs Church, on average, is above middle class. But no church should be one kind, one thing, one race, one economic level, one one approach to education, one age group. That's the beauty of the unity of the church, that Christ transcends race and money and age and personal preferences and even NFL teams. Diversity even provides opportunity for our, our unity to shine. So that leads to the other aspect in this summary at the end of chapter 4, and that's the sacrifice of the church. Legitimate needs are being met by those who have more as they freely sacrifice their more for those with less. Verse 32, no one really viewed his stuff as his own. Or we saw back in chapter 2, they had all things in common. As we said when we looked at chapter 2, we have to say again... This isn't referring to an early form of communism or socialism. It's not as though at the beginning of the church they, they sold everything they had, they pulled all their resources together, and then that quickly followed by an equal distribution among the group. If that were the case, there would be less needs to meet, and it would also mean that, those, that there wouldn't be any in the church who had more and could step up at special times to meet special needs. Now, the Bible speaks of riches and poverty. Of course, the Bible warns about the temptations of riches. 1 Timothy 6 warns those who desire to be rich that trouble's coming. It tells the rich not to be haughty, not to trust in riches... But again, the Bible doesn't flatten out wealth for the church. The rich are warned, but they are also instructed to use their wealth, not to get rid of all their wealth, but to use it, to be generous, to be ready to share, and to focus on storing up treasures in heaven, not on the earth. That's 1 Timothy 6. Or in the language of Acts, 4, they are to live as though they had everything in common, as though nothing they owned was really their own. Now you might notice I added the, the words as though. It's not in the Bible. I'm not trying to soften the Bible by saying as though it weren't their own. But I think it must be implied or else we have a direct contradiction just a few verses later. When Peter is confronting Ananias in chapter five, verse four, look at that. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After your land was sold, was it not, was not the proceeds at your disposal? You see, the giving of the church is remarkable and special precisely because it is volitional. In the Old Testament, A tithe was required, a tenth. In fact, there were three different tithes. The New Testament doesn't speak of a percentage. It doesn't use that word tithe for Christian giving to churches or to meet the needs of the saints. In our passage, nothing is said about a certain percentage. Nothing is said about a certain amount. The New Testament instead speaks of principles of the heart. It gets at the motive of giving It it talks about how giving to meet the needs of others and to support the ministry of the gospel flows out of the gospel because that gospel, the good news, came to us at great sacrifice. Jesus, who was rich, became poor for us that we who are poor might become rich. That's the motivation to give in 2 Corinthians 9. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two chapters together, give us several different principles for our giving in the New Covenant. It must be sacrificial and generous. It should be voluntary, not begrudgingly. It should be cheerful and worshipful. And again, it should be in light of the gospel. I think that's what we're seeing in Acts 4. It was voluntary. It was God-wrought. It was spirit produced. It flowed out a shared belief. It was part of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. It was part of being of one heart and one soul with people who you call friends. Remember that from last week? These are brothers and sisters. This is a new family. It was instinctual to meet their needs. Not a new law, not a specific amount or percentage. We would like that. That's easier. It's easier. Old Testament giving was easier because you could give the amount and that's it you're done you have less to live on yes I know but that's it you just give you decide to give you give that's it you obeyed in the new covenant it gets at heart motives but why where's it coming from Is it it that new covenant spirit-wrought instinctual care for others who are in trouble or hurting? In Acts 4, their generosity seemed to flow out of apostolic preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 33. You see this? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Now, when I read this about a week ago in view of this sermon, I, I thought, well, that sort of stands out like a sore thumb. What's, what is apostolic preaching doing here in verse 33? When unity and sacrifice was what was before and unity and sacrifice is what comes after. Is this just clumsy writing by Luke? Or is Luke instead pointing to the fact that the apostolic preaching of the resurrection of Jesus is the special sauce? It's the special sauce which leads to unity and generosity That's what makes for no needy person among them. That language, no needy person among them, is taken from Deuteronomy 15. Back then, God promised a time in the future when God's people would have no needs. There wouldn't be a thing as physical, true poverty among God's people because God's people would care for each other so well. And if you thumb through the Bible in the Old Testament, that day never seems to have come until you get here, and Luke thinks that it has come. Luke says that day is fulfilled. God is now working in his people in such a way that there's no needy person among them. Those who were owners of lands and houses sold them. Now, this isn't people with one house selling their one house, being homeless since they would then all of a sudden become some of the most needy people in the church, they would need someone else to sell their house to meet their need of having a house. No, these are apparently fairly wealthy people, owners of land, those with more than one house, people with extra land. Yet, don't let that make you think that this kind of giving is only for the rich. Don't think that this giving here was, was for those who had extra. By the way, no one thinks they have extra. Giving hurts all of us, right? We, we, we have to sacrifice something. None of us have money sitting aside that we don't plan to use. It's just collecting dust. We say, oh, that's not even being used. That, I have no plans for that. I have no use for that. Why don't we give it to the church? That hasn't happened yet in the history of the church. And so this kind of giving here, yes, among the wealthy, but that's just one example. Sometimes giving in Acts is described in more general terms. They had all things in common. That applies to everyone. And sometimes it gets specific. Landowners selling off plots of land in order to meet needs. Like Barnabas. Barnabas. We're given the example of Barnabas in verse 36 and 37. We're introduced to him at length, you might have noticed. I think there are four or five descriptions of him. Partly because he'll become a big deal in the story of Acts starting in chapter 13. From there on out, he is Paul's right-hand man in the missionary endeavors. Here we're told Barnabas means son of encouragement. More literally, it means son of exhortation son of preaching, son of prophecy. He's a preacher. Apparently, he came from some means. He's got an extra land, an extra house or something. And apparently, he was a model of generosity and sacrifice. So verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet for them to distribute as there was need. What a beautiful scene at the end here of End of chapter 4, what a beautiful church. And of course, Luke is describing what is really the case for this church. And he's also setting us up for a related contrast with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So if you can picture at the end of chapter 4, it's a sunny day. The, The flowers are in bloom. Birds are chirping. All is well. As you turn the page into chapter 5, some clouds are starting to settle or even rumble. The mood is starting to get a little dark. We could call this section, the second section, the hypocrisy and purity of the church. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As we read already, a husband and wife in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, now throughout all of church history known for this one thing. They lied about how much they gave to the church. They stuck to their lie when confronted and God killed them for it on the spot. But not at once. They're killed separately. The drama is spread out. There's a three-hour span between. Their sin was not that they kept back some for themselves. That fact couldn't be clear. We already read it in verse four. Peter said, while it remained unsold, didn't the land remain your own? You didn't have to give it up. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The sin was that they lied about how much of the proceeds they were giving to the church. They sold a plot of land, They didn't have to do that. Well done, good and faithful servants. They decided to give a portion, perhaps a significant portion of the land to the church. Well done, you don't have to give any of it. That wasn't the problem. It's that they communicated or portrayed that they were giving all of the proceeds to the church when they'd kept some back for themselves. Why is this so serious? We know it's a lie, but still, why is it so serious? We, we tell white lies all the time. Well, Peter tells us it's satanic, verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart? Which I don't think is the same thing as demon possession. Different language is used in the example of Judas, where Satan entered him here. Satan has filled their heart, presumably with temptation, with an idea, with a scheme. So it was satanic, but it wasn't owing only to Satan as if they weren't responsible because verse 4, Peter says, they contrived this deed in their heart. They were fully responsible for it. In fact, if you look carefully, you'll see that this was a premeditated, conscious, mutual decision between husband and wife in order to deceive the church about their giving. Verse 2, with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back some. Verse 9, Peter said to Sapphira, why have you agreed together to test the spirit? They even agreed on the set amount. They got their story straight beforehand. Ananias was asked, I'm sorry, Peter asked the wife, Sapphira, tell me whether you you sold the land for so much. That so much is probably a number Ananias gave Peter. Yes, Sapphira says, for so much. Now what's behind this? We know it's satanic, we know it's a lie, but what's the motive here? Could it be love of money? Yeah, perhaps, perhaps or a lack of trust in the Lord for the future? Yeah, perhaps. I think a more likely motive is just hypocrisy and deceit and portraying themselves in front of men and women better than they were. I think they were posturing themselves. They were portraying themselves to be more spiritual than they were. They were puffing themselves up before men caring less about how they looked before God. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Oh, this is, this is tricky here. It's a fine line. Barnabas was known for giving up his land and the whole of it. He practiced righteousness Mm, not quietly in secret, it was known what he gave. Uh, But it doesn't seem as though he gave in order to be seen by men. And Ananias and Sapphira not only gave in order to be seen by men, but they lied to to be seen better than they actually were. This is a good time for us to take inventory on why we do what we do for the Lord. Are we after recognition? Are we after men's praise? There's a Seinfeld episode where George is in a, a restaurant or diner and, and goes to give a tip in the tip jar, but the guy behind the counter isn't seeing it. And so George takes it out again. He gets caught and kicked out. But, but in, in George, George's economy, in his mind... Did you actually even give a tip unless someone saw you give a tip? No. So I wonder if some of us don't pray unless someone besides God hears us. I wonder if some of us don't read the Bible unless others lead the way. I wonder if some of you don't give to the church Because who sees it anyway? Who cares? A couple of secretaries? No, I don't care. Well, God knows. And we can glorify God or we can grieve God by those secret things, those hidden things. May God give us wisdom and humility and a Godward focus so that we're not driven by stupid, short-sighted goals of improving our other people's perception of us. May God give us wisdom also so that we're not hamstrung with endless introspection which actually freezes us from doing real good. The good that Ananias and Sapphira were doing, it was almost good. It it was almost good, it it was almost remarkable. I mean, to sell your land and, and give it to the church. It was almost there. But in the end, it was no good at all because it was a lie. A lie, verse four, not just to men, but to God. Verse 3, they lied to the Holy Spirit. Now that's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It says they lied to or about the Holy Spirit. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think it has to mean something along the lines of they undermined the genuineness of, of the Spirit's work in the church to move the people to sacrifice to meet needs for each other. That's what was behind Barnabas' gift. I think they undermined the genuineness of the Spirit's work. I think they, they treated the church like the world operates. And the world says, uh, perception is Reality. Fake it until you make it. Truth is what you make of it. Well, it shouldn't be with God's people in the church. Perhaps they also ignored or downplayed the presence of God in the spirit in the church. Did they think that God wouldn't see? That God wouldn't know? Did he enter the picture? Or did they think that God wouldn't? or couldn't do anything about it because of grace well god did god did see god cared he acted swiftly and seriously and they were killed by god in front of the church that isn't the typical way that god deals with sin thank the lord for that It's been said before that if God always responded to sin like this, every church would need a mortician on their pastoral staff. And for that matter, there would be no pastoral staff. (laughs) But isn't it more remarkable that God is so patient with us and with our sin... Than it is that he sometimes, very rarely, judges swiftly and decisively like this. Which one's more remarkable? Well, I don't know if you know sin very well or know our God very well if you aren't just breathtaking by his ongoing patience and mercy with you because of Jesus who died for you. Elsewhere in scripture, we see similar things to this moment in Acts 5. Remember that Lot's wife looked back to Sodom and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Nadab in Abihu in Leviticus 10, on their first day as being priests, they offered strange fire, it says to the Lord, and God killed them. Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 was moving the ark and he touched it, not maliciously, but to steady it because it was on bumpy terrain. And he died immediately. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that some in that church were physically sick and some were even dead because they misused and abused the Lord's Supper. And this is probably what 1 John 5 is talking about when it speaks of a sin unto death. A sin unto death. At least in some of these cases that I just rattled off, it seems that God isn't initiating a person's eternal demise in hell, but is giving a sudden and severe discipline that takes a sinning child home. I suspect that's what we we have here with Ananias and Sapphira. We can't be definitive, but I suspect... That they're not malicious blasphemers and frauds who God exposes as frauds and then sends them to hell, but these are wayward, sinning children who get a permanent time (laughs) out because they need it and because it's good for them and because it's good for the church. It's not just about them, it's good for the church. Great fear came upon all who heard it, verse five. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It's not that Ananias and Sapphira's sin was so utterly unique and grave that it received this unique judgment. It was a judgment meant to produce fear in others at this special time this unique moment at the birth of the church, at the dawn of the new covenant era. And God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah about this new covenant in Jeremiah 32. He said, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. That's part of the new covenant for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Well, that's what we're seeing played out in the book of Acts. Holy fear. We're seeing people embrace the seriousness of the reality of God and the presence of God and the holiness of God And they don't just fear him, but they know him and commune with him and pray to him and represent him to the world. They believe that he is not only to be feared, but that he will do us good as the new covenant promised. And doing us good is wholly undeserved because of our sin. In Acts chapter 9, we're given another one of these summary statements, a brief one there but it mingles some of these ideas of fear and also comfort. Acts 9 verse 31, the church had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Isn't that beautiful? Multi-layered and rich. Oh, that desert springs that would be said of us that there's peace. We're being built up. That we walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel is going forth and the church is being multiplied. In Acts, no doubt God's people in part walked in the fear of the Lord because of the sobering message of the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira. And we today should walk in the fear of the Lord, in part because of the sobering message that God sent to us through his word about the discipline in Ananias and Sapphira. He does see, he does know, he does care, he hates sin, especially trumped up religiosity for the appearance to others. There are many lessons and implications in the Ananias and Sapphira story. That affair reminds us that hypocrisy in the church is possible, and it's real, and it's still today. Even in great days, even in the glory days, which wrap up chapter four, you turn the page, and hypocrisy and lying rears their ugly heads. Don't be surprised when you see hypocrisy in the church. Yes, God has written his law in our hearts and he's put his fear within us, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect yet. He's making us new. We're not just forgiven, we're being made new, but that's a progress. That's a a process. And the struggle's real. Don't be naive to think that hypocrisy is no temptation for you. Oh, be on guard against the schemes of the devil. He is a roaring lion seeking to devour. The Ananias and Sapphira affair reminds us that God wants all of us, genuinely so, not in pretense, not for show. He doesn't want 10% of your check or 80% of your land. He wants all of you. It's all his anyway. Acts 5 reminds us that God is serious and sometimes dead serious about the purity of his church. In this case, God took Ananias and Sapphira out of this world immediately. We don't do that. We don't take each other out. We don't pray for each other to be taken out. But we do have Matthew 18, which gives us progressive instructions about how to confront an unrepentant, persistent brother. If he will not listen, if if he sins, you go to him and you tell him your fault. Tell him his fault, rather. And if he will not listen, you take two or three with you. And if he will not listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if he will not listen even to the church, then you must treat him as an unbeliever for his sake, for the church's sake, for truth's sake. We have to remember that we're not in this alone. My sin is not my sin. My private sins are not mine to keep private. And the Ananias and Sapphira affair reminds us that the church's hypocrisies and lies, which are real and ever-present, though sad and even satanic, They do not threaten the promise and the progress of Jesus building his church. Isn't that the great scheme and scope of these stories put together? The threat on the outside of the church from the religious leaders back in chapter 4 is really no threat at all. They pray for boldness. The, The gospel goes forth. The church grows. And this threat, the seeming threat from within the church of deception, it's really no threat at all. It seems unthinkable, but that's why Luke gives us another celebratory summary of the church's stage, right, right after the Ananias and Sapphira affair. So let's read it again, verses 12 to 16. We read it some time ago. It's been a while now. Read chapter 5, verse 12 and following, and see here how this ends up. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, there for teaching, all as one big group. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men And women, So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cords and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. See, it's spreading now, not just in Jerusalem. They're coming from the outside in. They're bringing their sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So here's our last point. The fear and allure of the church. Do you see the fear and allure? Some things in this section here at the end of our passage are are not all that new. We've seen signs and wonders before. We've seen preaching and the multiplying of the church before. It is new to read of Peter's shadow having a healing effect... As I said last week, Paul's handkerchief in Acts 19 has healing power somehow. These are very special, spectacular events not to be imitated. They're here to show us that there's a reminiscence of Jesus' ministry here. Remember, the woman touched the helm of Jesus' garment and she was instantly healed. This has the fingerprints of Jesus on it, doesn't it? Peter's shadow, Paul's handkerchief. So that's all unique. And so is this dual effect of fear and allure on the community around them. It's fascinating how it's worded. Verse 13 and 14 almost sounds self-contradictory. None of the rest dared join them. People held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. I say again, Ananias and Sapphira's affair, their sin, their deceit, their persistence in deceit, reminds us that even the church's most controversial moments are no problem for Jesus. He just keeps on keeping on. He's building his church, church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No one dared join them, more than ever. Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes. Now, we, we don't want to be famous in our community as a church where people drop dead, unless God does that. If he does that, okay, we'll trust him, we'll ride that train, but, but, but there's, the, there's a difference here There's something really powerful about the fact that this God killed his people for lying and deceit. And that sends shockwaves through the church and into the community. But that's a difference. Here's a similarity. Might we also be respected? Might we also be thought of as taking purity serious? taking God's word serious? Might we stand out as unique? Might we be known for being a people who are zealous for God and for his word, and might that stand out? The apostle Paul, even apart from miracles, could say in 2 Corinthians, to some in the world, we stink. To some others in the world, we smell like an aroma of life. We smell to, to both, right? We have an odor. To some, it will smell like a stench, and to some, it will smell sweet. But we better have some kind of aroma coming off us. Indifference is not a reasonable option to this God. Indifference is, is not a reasonable response to the risen Jesus, who is Lord and Savior. Indifference, rolling of the eyes, going on with the rest of life, it's not a reasonable option in light of this institution, the church, which just keeps plodding along and growing and multiplying and spreading, not perfectly. No, there's hypocrisy, we know, we lie. But there's mercy, there's a God who's bigger than it all. He's not threatened by any of it. And so know that this Jesus is risen and he reigns and he is building his church. We pray you join us, not just join a church but come in through Jesus, there's only one way in. Believe on his name. Trust him for the forgiveness of sins. Believe what the Bible says, that your biggest problem is your sin. And Jesus came into this world to die in the place of sinners, to bear God's judgment, and to give righteousness to those who admit they can never, ever, ever earn it. To those who know themselves to be hopeless apart from a gift of mercy and a gift of righteousness. That's received simply by believing it to be so and calling out to the name of Jesus that he would give it. And when you believe that, he begins to change you. He begins to transform you. It'll alter your priorities. You might do something stupid like sell a plot of land or give up an extra house. Christian, Let's remember that this gospel not only forgives, but it puts us together in the church. It makes us one. Remember that he transforms lives. Not perfectly yet, but he's on his way. And sometimes he transforms us in radical ways. Remember that sin will come into this church, it's here now, it will seem to threaten relationships. Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church has been tested countless times from within. The church has been tested countless times from without. And Jesus goes on. As Martin Luther taught us to sing, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, he's grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word from Christ will fell him. That's what's coming. What a privilege it is to be together with you in this church, in the eternal, unshakable institution of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to be with you in the mission of his name going forth in this world despite our sin, by his power, according to his spirit, through the preaching of his word. And on and on it goes until one day we're told his glory will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. Let's pray for that now. Oh, Father, we pray what it says in Psalm 67, that you would bless us and you would cause your face to shine upon us, not just for our good, not for our joy, but that your name would be known in all the earth. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, that you died for grave hypocrisy and persistent lies. We thank you that you not only forgive, but you transform, that you are making a people for yourself that's pure, not perfectly so, but increasingly so, and we pray for more of it. We pray for boldness and courage for the mission that we have ahead of us in representing you to this world, we pray it would be so here that, that people would, would have a holy awe about what is going on here. I mean, perhaps some would say, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. And others would say, I want that. We pray even now, Lord, perhaps some in this room would, would want you and would come to you. We thank you for your mercy and love. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.